You're listening to That's The Tea with me, Anthony Fulton. On today's episode, we're talking about pride and acceptance. So put the kettle on, grab yourself a cuppa and join the conversation. Welcome to the first podcast episode of That's The Tea. For those of you who have no idea who I am, my name is Anthony Fulton. I'm from Scotland and I'm an actor, sometimes. Other times I'm a writer or a gamer, but mostly I'm a dreamer. Some of you may recall way back in January I started a YouTube series that was also called That's The Tea. There were only two episodes that made it onto the channel, so don't worry if you didn't see it or can't quite remember it because it didn't last very long. But the purpose of it was basically to give me something to do. Throughout lockdown, I got very bored very quickly. I'm sure most of you can relate to that feeling. And hosting a chat show type series was something I kept wanting to try out for a while, but I kept putting it off. Either I was too busy, or I would just find a way of talking myself out of the idea. But this year I decided, why not? Let's just try it. So here we are. And truthfully, this is a very new experience for me, so don't be shocked if it's a little rough around the edges at parts. I'm still learning as I go along, but running a podcast series in place of the YouTube series does have its benefits. For starters, it means I don't have to worry about covering up any spots or blemishes or making sure that my hair is under control because, let me tell you, that's honestly more hassle than it's worth. My hair has a complete disregard for decency and does whatever it wants to do at any given time, regardless of what I want it to do. So, yeah. Welcome to the first podcast episode of That's The Tea. Now, part of me deliberately wanted to wait until now to get it all started, because I knew I wanted to do something, especially for Pride, and I thought, why not wait to start the series during Pride, and that way it's special for two reasons. And I've got a couple of things I want to talk about, so without further ado, let's get into it. So I've been watching Doctor Who recently, or re-watching it I should say. And I know, one second I'm talking about Pride, and the next I'm bringing up Doctor Who. It's it's a regular occurrence. But trust me, there is a point to it, just bear with me. Now, anyone who knows me personally knows just how obsessed I am with Doctor Who. I would call it a guilty pleasure, but I don't even feel that guilty about it. It started when I was seven years old, 
I used to watch episodes from the classic era that my dad had on video. I mean, that's how far back we're going. He had these episodes on videotape. So then when Doctor Who returned to our screens in 2005, I'd already been watching it for about three years. So yeah, the obsession hit me pretty hard. And I've been re-watching them recently because for the most part, through the Christopher Eccleston, David Tennant and Matt Smith years, I've seen every episode loads of times. I mean, we're talking well into double digits for each episode. I was just constantly watching them. When it was raining, when it wasn't raining, after school, when I should have been doing homework, it was constant. And every Saturday for 13 weeks of the year, I would sit and watch the new episode being aired on BBC One, and then on the next Sunday, I would sit and watch the exact same episode being repeated on BBC Three. It was a weekly routine. Every Christmas as well. No Christmas was complete without having the Doctor Who special to watch. And I would always beg my mum to make sure that Christmas dinner and everything else was done before it came on so that I could just sit and focus all of my attention on it for an hour. They don't even do the Christmas specials anymore. They started doing New Year's Day specials instead, which it's just not the same. It's totally broken tradition. It hurts. But that was my life growing up. Just loads and loads and loads of Doctor Who. I bought the magazines, the walls of my room were covered in posters and stickers. I had toys and books and DVDs. I even went to one of the exhibitions in Glasgow for my 14th birthday, I think. Yeah, I was fairly hooked on the show. And in a way, it has influenced the direction that my life has taken quite drastically. Because when I was younger, going back to when I first watched those old episodes with Tom Baker and Peter Davison, I wanted to be the Doctor. That was what I wanted to be when I grew up, not an astronaut or a detective or anything that kids usually say that oddly seems more achievable in comparison. No. I wanted to be the Doctor. And that is what drove me towards acting and drama. My driving force for years and years and years is this unyielding ambition to be the Doctor. So there's a little bit of insight into who I am as a person. I can totally understand if you want to back away slowly and never return. <laughs> but anyway, back to the point I was trying to make. Rewatching Doctor Who, I've noticed um, a few things that I didn't really notice before, or things that I that I had noticed but never really put too much thought into. So I'm currently working through um, the Peter Capaldi years that I've not seen much of. I've only watched those episodes maybe, I don't know, once or twice, because at the time that they were being broadcast I was going through my college years and studying full time, and generally just being too busy to watch them more than the once. So I don't know those episodes as well as the others that came before it, so I'm re-watching them. Um, and yeah, and like I've seen things that I'd never noticed before. And one of those things is this recurring theme of acceptance. 
that gets played on throughout Capaldi's run, particularly in his first couple of episodes as the Doctor. So Peter Capaldi was 50 years old when he took over the role of the Doctor, which was quite a fair jump in age from Matt Smith, who was only 31 when he left the series. And even in comparison to um, previous actors who had played the Doctor, Peter Capaldi was the oldest actor at the start of his run since John Pertwee back in 1966. So it was quite a bold move for the show to make. And while I don't personally remember there being much negativity surrounding Peter Capaldi's casting, there was a sort of worry, I guess, that it would create a divide in the fans. A bit like when Matt Smith took over from David Tennant. And suddenly, you know, the show was dropping fans left, right and centre because they absolutely adored David Tennant and could not possibly imagine the show without him. And admittedly, I was among those that loved David Tennant's version and still do to this day rank him as one of my favourite Doctors, if not my favourite of the Doctors. But... I kept watching the show. I stuck with it. And it was weird because I did have an internal resentment of Matt Smith's Doctor for so long, but I carried on knowing that eventually I would get over it. And I did. Six episodes before he then left the show. Yeah, it really took me that long to finally admit to myself that Matt Smith was a good Doctor. I mean, Thankfully, that acceptance then applied through all of his episodes. When I went back and rewatched them, I found I was able to appreciate them more than I did the first time round. But there were a lot of people who just gave up altogether. They quit. A lot of fans just left because David Tennant was gone and they had decided in their own minds that Matt Smith was not good enough for them. And I think Stephen Moffat, the head writer at the time, almost expected a similar reaction when Peter Capaldi took over. That's at least the impression that I got from the way that Peter Capaldi's first couple of episodes really target this story about change and acceptance of change. You know, you had the companion at the time, Clara Oswald, who had travelled with Matt Smith's doctor and established this fun, flirty, almost boyfriend-girlfriend level of friendship with him, and then suddenly witnessing him regenerate into this much older and much more serious person. And to begin with it, she's, you know, she's quite opposed to this change, almost in a stage of denial. She refuses to accept that the Doctor is the same person. You know, she makes out that the Doctor is gone, when the reality is he's just changed his face. So then their first episode together is all about trying to reinforce this idea that even though he's no longer her young-looking gentleman friend, as they put it in the show, but that he's still very much the Doctor. And eventually she comes round to accepting this and agrees to keep travelling with him. Even though, you know, she's still a little unsure about where they go from there and how things are going to work out between them, she goes along with them. And, you know, there's a few bumps in, in the road. There's some arguments, 
a lot of shouting at each other. They kind of, in a way, they kind of go from being boyfriend and girlfriend to an old married couple. It's great. And that's, but that sort of acceptance is kind of what inspired my topic of discussion for this podcast. Acceptance. And what it means to different people. So, in preparation for the big premiere episode, I asked around some of my friends and peers what acceptance means to them, and the responses I received were fantastic. So, if any of those people are listening now, I want to say a big thank you to all of you for contributing. I have noted down some of my favourite ones, um, so let's have a look through them. Uh, first on the list we've got understanding someone's individual circumstances. Yes, absolutely, because you know everyone has their own lives and experiences. We all come from different backgrounds and go through different upbringings. Life. Someone said this to me recently, life is not a competition by any means. We are all just trying to get by and you shouldn't make comparisons between two different people, you know? Just because one person can do this, that and the next thing does not automatically mean that someone can or even should be able to do the same. Um, We all have our own strengths and our own weaknesses that will differ from someone else's. I think it was Albert Einstein who said that everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life believing it's stupid. And that is so true. And we must accept that that some people are more capable of doing things than others. That's just the way of life. So yeah, 100%. Acceptance is understanding someone's individual circumstances. Uh, What else do we have? Understanding the difference between what we can change and what we cannot. Again, yes, I completely agree with that statement. Acceptance is a learning to live with something. Uh, It's understanding that uh, something is beyond your control and just existing in harmony with it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Security, safety, contentment, happiness, love and freedom. Acceptance is allowing people to be themselves and ensuring they feel all of the above. That is a really great way of putting that. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I mean, bottom line really is just to be nice to people. That's really all anyone is asking for or looking for. Nobody wants people making judgments or remarks or commenting and criticising on the way that they live their lives. For the most part, people just want to live in peace and not have to deal with hassle on a daily basis. So yeah. Just accept that everyone has a different way of living and move on. Be kind. Be nice. Be the best you can be. Always. Uh, And this one, um, which is possibly my favourite one because it perfectly summarises what acceptance means to me too. Um, 
Acceptance can mean a great many things depending on the situation. Sometimes it's the final stage of grief, when we accept things beyond our control and we can move along in life without it pulling us backwards. That does not mean we forget or that it doesn't hurt, it just means we accept it. Another meaning is when you accept that someone may not have the same lifestyle, opinion or choices that you do, but you don't hate them for it or try to make them feel less for it. We can disagree, but we do not have to be vile about it. That came from a very good friend of mine and I completely agree. Completely. It's, again, it's about learning to live with something, reaching a stage of understanding that some things are beyond our reach. And like that, it might be something that you do not entirely agree with. And that is okay. Accepting something does not mean you agree with it. It just means you've come to understand that it's a part of life that you cannot change or control in any way. This is something I believe a lot of people could learn from to accept that some things are not within your power to change. The, the best example I can give is my acceptance that some people will never change their views on who I am as a person, my being an openly gay man. I have accepted that not everyone will agree with it or like it or whatever, and to be quite honest that is fine. I've made peace with that. And I know that some people listening to this will disagree with me on that, and that's okay. That That's the point I'm trying to make. That it's okay to disagree with something, but everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Where I draw the line on that, though, is when people go out of their way to you know, cause harm or distress or become very antagonistic and actively attack people for, you know, the way that they live their life, whether that's verbally or physically or whatever. Um, that is the number one rule. You can think whatever you want privately. The minute that you speak out against me or anyone else, the minute you do anything, whether that's a joke or a snide remark or a criticism on how I should live my life or how anyone should live their life, that's when I have an issue. That is well, that's what I will not accept. That's something we should all refuse to accept. It is not okay to attack anyone or criticize or judge anyone for the way that they live their life. And I will happily defend anyone who is in a position where they will be you know, where they're being openly discriminated against. No way. Be civil. Be respectful. Be kind. Now, unless you've managed to find yourself living under a rock, you will have noticed that we are now well into Pride Month. So in case you were wondering why suddenly all of your favourite brands and companies and friends are suddenly displaying their rainbow profile filters, 
now you know. Pride is a massive event that takes place every single year. Every June, around the world, people come together for a whole month dedicated to the awareness and promotion of LGBTQ rights. Countless parades and marches and events with plenty of multicoloured banners and costumes and flags to go around. Unfortunately, this year, with the coronavirus pandemic still being ever-present in many countries, a lot of the usual festivities and celebrations have been cancelled. But have no fear, for Pride shall return in full force very, very soon. For anyone curious about how Pride started and why it is still an ongoing part of modern day society, do not worry because I have got all of the need-to-know facts ready for you right here. It all began in 1969, in a time where it was against the law to partake in homosexual relations. Being gay, lesbian or transgender was extremely difficult, with bars and gathering places popular within the gay community being frequently raided by police officers who would go in order everyone to get out, and often take people into custody who were considered the most gay-looking and keep him in lock-up overnight for being drunk and disorderly, in accordance with a law at the time that authorised the arrest of anyone not wearing at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. In some cases, the worst cases, the brutal murder of gay men was judged as an act of self-defence based on claims that those gay men had tried it on with the straight men who had then taken their lives. The persecution of members of the LGBT community was horrific. Even going about their own business on a completely normal day, gay men and women would often find themselves being followed or pulled over by police if they looked a certain way, if they gave off a gay vibe and needlessly questioned and obligated to have their vehicles be searched. Prior to 1969, many protests against this treatment were made, but all were eventually dispersed and shut down. For many years, it seemed like a future of acceptance and change was impossible. That was until the early hours of June 28, 1969 in a small bar in the Greenwich Village neighbourhood of New York City, known as the Stonewall Inn. A group of nine police officers entered the establishment and, as they had done many times before, ordered everyone to clear out, arresting members of staff for selling alcohol without a licence and taking many patrons of the bar into custody in accordance with the law regarding three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. While the police had come to expect people to fear their very presence, acting as a deterrent to these individuals, that they would arrive on scene to perform a raid and find that anyone in the area who was able to flee and get away would do exactly that. What they were not ready for was the total opposite. As they tried to force people into the back of their police van, they were met with resistance as more and more people passing by began verbally objecting to the scenes that they were witnessing, shouting and yelling, debating the plausible cause for arresting these individuals and eventually 
arming themselves with whatever they could find, bottles and rocks, to physically fight back against the officers on scene. It wasn't long before the officers had to take refuge and barricaded themselves within the Stonewall Inn to call for backup as they watched a fair few hundred rioters and protesters forming outside. Where they had previously been met with fear, they were now being faced with anger and despite reinforcements arriving in time to disperse the crowds, the protests continued to attract the attention of so many others across the country and soon became known as the Stonewall Uprising. It was the first time that such an instantaneous act of protest had occurred, with people uniting and standing together against intolerance and discrimination. And from that moment on, protests across, across the country and soon the world took place. Like the civil rights movement and the feminist movements before them, these protests were met with violence and aggression, which in turn only provoked more people and inspired them to join the cause. Groups like the Gay Liberation Front and Gay Activism Alliance were formed that took charge of launching numerous demonstrations as well as often publicly confronting political officials in the street and demanding change. Stonewall ignited a nationwide fire that demanded acceptance and respect for all LGBT members. One year later, on 28th of June 1970, on the anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, New York City saw its first gay pride march. It saw marchers make their way from Washington Place up 6th Avenue towards Central Park. Remarkably, the march attracted the attention of thousands of participants, much to the surprise of even those who had organised the event itself. And with every passing year, more and more participants joined these marches in commemoration of the Stonewall Uprising. Just over 50 years later, the Pride March still takes place in several cities and countries all around the world. And while the decades have seen a significant change in the treatment of LGBTQ members, there is still a long way to go. This year in the United States of America, newly elected President Joe Biden has already signed executive orders to recognise more protections against discrimination based on sex to include sexuality, gender identity and sex stereotypes in several areas, including housing, education and access to shelters. He's also ordered all federal agencies to review their existing regulations and policies that prohibit sex discrimination to ensure that they include sexual orientation and gender identity. On the 25th of January, President Joe Biden also signed an executive order ending the ban on the service by transgender people in the military that was put in place only two years prior by President Donald Trump. And again in May, President Joe Biden reversed a policy also enacted by the Trump administration that allowed healthcare companies to deny coverage to gay and transgender people. That's been reversed now. And while all these things are good and definitely a sign of progression in modern day society, it is important to remember that the biggest reason that Pride is still held annually 
is that not everyone lives in countries where these protections are put in place. There are still over 60 countries around the world that have laws in place making homosexuality illegal, and in many of those countries, gay sex is punishable by death. So yes, while we've come a very long way since 1969, there is still a very long way to go. Even in remote areas of the United Kingdom, there are communities that shun and discriminate against those who are gay or transgender. Homophobia and transphobia are still very much a continuing presence in society. And while there are now laws against acts of discrimination, many people do not feel safe enough to be who they are in fear of being met with resistance and aggression. And that is why Pride is still very much an important part of society. To serve as a call for respect and acceptance. To serve as a reminder that many people, both young and old, still face resistance and discrimination against who they are. To serve as a reminder that we are here to stay, no matter how hard anyone tries. If you are gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, pansexual, asexual, non-binary, whoever you are, you are loved. You are beautiful. You are you. Speaking about the importance of pride leads me on to my next topic of discussion just before we wrap up. Something a bit more personal. It's something that, in the spirit of pride and acceptance, that I, I want to share with you all. So I have been openly gay for just over 10 years now. It feels like a lifetime ago when 16 year old me sat at the kitchen table on my birthday and came out to my mother, who, I must add, responded very positively. In fact, if anything, she was more relieved that I had finally managed to work it out myself after she'd been waiting since I was maybe five years old. No idea what mischief I was up to at that age that made her realise, but there we go. So yeah, here we are, ten years later, and... I think I'm finally ready to come out all over again. The past decade of my life, I have regarded myself as being a gay man. And that's not about to change. I'm still very much a gay man. But what I have come to realise about myself is that I do not necessarily identify with homosexuality. In fact, to be more specific, I am homo-romantic. Now, I can almost hear people asking, what does that mean? What is the difference? And the answer is nothing at all. Nothing that anyone would actually notice. I am still very much the same person I was before. I've not changed. I just re I've just come to realise that sex is not for me. I neither like it nor want it, so 
really it shouldn't bother anyone at all, unless you had other plans, and we'll just leave that there. But it is something that I feel the need to publicly address, because I don't feel there's enough representation for people in the same boat as me. People that, reading through the definitions of homosexuality and asexuality and all the categories in between, and not quite fitting with any of them. It's a strange place to be. And it can be quite isolating too, because from my experience, there was a long time where I thought I was broken, because I didn't quite fit anywhere. Sexuality is such a fluid thing. It's impossible to stick a label on absolutely everything no matter how many countless labels there are already. And I'm not the biggest fan of labels in the first place, so when people try and assign one to me and almost decide who I am for me, that's not okay. That, that annoys me. For now, I have found comfort and security within the category of homoromantic, and that is where I am staying. But it can be difficult, especially in the world of dating. I cannot tell you how many unsuccessful relationships I have been in because while I was trying to figure out who I was, the guys I was with were not ready to commit to a relationship where sex was not an option. So yeah, that can be, that can be a bit emotionally tough to deal with. But. That's just a part of life. When it comes to romance, though, I am your guy. This is starting to sound a bit like a, a dating profile. Date nights and romantic gestures are something of my superpower. I am that guy that still likes the idea of Valentine's Day. I know, I know, it's sickening, but I do. I don't often act on it. I rarely ever send cards out to anyone. In fact, the last time I did was just before lockdown hit Scotland. I gave a card to someone that I'd had a crush on for a couple of years and it was as cringy as you would expect it to be. I wasn't expecting anything to come from it, more just as a way of shutting down the little voice in my head saying, you'll regret it if you don't. So I did. And yeah, nothing, nothing came of it. In fact, we ended up locking down and not being able to see anyone at all for a year and a half. So if that's not a sign, then I don't know what that is. Do I regret doing it though? No, because like that, it stopped me from constantly thinking about doing it. It let me accept, there's that beautiful word again, that it wasn't going to happen. And I could move on after months and months and months of debating, maybe it could happen. No, it'll never happen, but maybe it could happen. So I did it. And eventually, you know, one day I will meet the right person for me. Someone who ticks all of the boxes and we can live happily ever after together. One day. I believe it's going to happen. And you will too.
Now, before I go on any longer, it is time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. I hope you found it insightful and enjoyable. If you want to get in touch, you will find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Triple T Show, all one word, Triple T Show. Um, there you will be able to find out more about when the next episode is coming out and any special opinion polls and surveys that we have you can get involved with. So one more time, thank you for listening and take care. I'm Anthony Fulton and that's the tea. Goodbye.